I said last week that this year we're going to not only talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures, but we're going to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, um, you know, it's better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come to you. If I go away, the Spirit will come to you, and he's going to do a whole bunch of things. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to bring my very life into you. And you know, brothers and sisters, we live in a world where there's an information overload about Christianity. Uh, you can go to these Christian bookstores. I mean, there are more books in the Christian bookstores than possibly existed in the world before 1900. And there's books about books and books about books about books. And there's not a lot of change in Christians' lives. You know, I believe the, the most mature generation of Christians existed in the first century. And you know what? They didn't even have the New Testament. But they knew the gospel, and they had the Holy Spirit, and they had a childlike faith and trust in Father. As the song said this morning, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, all who are weary, come to the fountain. This is what it's about. It's not about what you know. All the right answers in the world, and nickel will not buy you a cup of coffee. It's about who you know. The fountain. The fountain of life. And it's prayer that in this next year or so that we can lead you not teach you how to live a life for Jesus but talk about learning to draw your life from Jesus because this is what it's really about us learning to draw our life from Jesus who is the way to go the truth to know and the life to live now I'm going to talk to you a lot about abiding this next year you can say Rick I'm getting tired of hearing about abiding let me tell you something it is the core to the Christian life. If you get it down, you've got everything down. If you don't get it down, you have nothing. So we're going to talk about abiding, but it's like a tree. We're going to hit on one side of the tree. We're going to hit on the other side of the tree. We're going to fall on top of the tree. We're going to dig under the tree. We're going to approach it from all different angles, but all with one end in mind that you and I learn to abide, draw our life from Jesus. All of us are like little automobiles. We have a fuel tank and we have a luggage compartment. The fuel tank is designed for 100 octane Jesus Christ. The luggage compartment is for all other good things. <clears throat> now, when we first become believers, we discover that there's a lot of bad stuff in the gas tank. So, in the early days of our Christian walk, Father shows us the bad things that are in the fuel tank, and they need to be discarded and thrown away. But after that happens, the rest of our life is discovering, discovering all of the good things that are in our gas tank that are not Jesus. Because to the extent we run off anything other than Jesus, we don't run off Jesus. Okay? I'm going to give you a couple examples, just because I want, I want us to really understand what this looks like. I'm going to give you some personal examples from my life. This is called the breaking of Rick. I became a believer when I was 20 years old, went the first three years of my life with no Christian fellowship. Father discipled me through the scriptures, through listening to J. Vernon McGee on the radio. Uh, the first time, and actually, I found peace and fullness in him, even apart from the body of Christ. And when I met my first group of believers, it was like unbelievable, just another added dimension. But my whole life has been this showing me things that are very good in my gas tank that are not him. 
So let me fast forward up to about the age of uh, 27. I had what I thought was the gift of celibacy. At the age of 22, I decided not to date, just, just spend my life with Jesus. I had this very good friend named Mark Cosgrove, who we had kind of a Jonathan and David relationship. And I introduced him to this girl, and uh, he started dating her. So I said, you know, Mark, since you date and I don't, let's take Paul's exhortation that a single man cares after the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. A married man cares after things of the world, how to please his wife. I said, let's take that and study that scripture as you're dating Joanne. And I said, obviously, Paul's not really trying to teach against marriage because that was the case in one generation, there'd be no Christian families, but there must be something there. So I said, let's take Jesus' example of a perfect husband and the church is his bride. Jesus never took his eyes off the Father to please the bride. But because he always kept his eyes on the Father, the bride was always perfectly pleased. So let's do this, Mark. So he said, great. Well, then the next week I went and read everything I could find in Scripture about love and marriage. Everything I could find. And I met with Mark the next week and I said, listen, I've read everything I can find in Scripture about love and marriage and I've come to three conclusions. The first conclusion I came to was that it doesn't... The only love that matters in a marriage is that which you find in Corinthians 13. And it's a fruit of the Spirit. The second conclusion I came to is because it's a fruit of the Spirit, you can have it for virtually millions of people. Because it has nothing to do with the person, but it has to do with Father loving that person through you. And then the third conclusion I came to is, even though it's a fruit of the Spirit, and even though you could love and be married to millions of different people, yet there is one particular person who Father wants us to marry. And so then I said, you know, I think it would be nice to live in biblical times. I think if, if, I, if God ever called me to uh, the ministry of marriage, I would just ask my father, and he would go get me a wife and bring her to me, and then Corinthians 13, love would kick in, and we'd live happily after. Okay. So, this was just young men talking. About a month later, I was teaching a Sunday school class with this young lady who I knew had feelings for me, but that didn't bother me at all. (laughs) But we used to to meet together and pray for our Sunday school class. And one Friday night after we prayed, she said to me, she said, Rick, I've heard about you being so joyful, peaceful, single. But she said, you know what? She said, I think you're just afraid. And I knew exactly what her motives were. But I had also learned that if another believer tells you something, you should listen because it may be the Holy Spirit. Well, what I discovered in the weeks to come is she was absolutely right. I was afraid. Now, let me tell you what this looks like. My security was in how I related to Jesus. It's kind of like if Jesus woke up in the morning and he didn't have a quiet time, do you think he'd have a bad day? Of course not. But my security was in how I related to Jesus, and I didn't see how I could fit another person into my relationship with Jesus. So Father basically started talking to me about, you need to lay the singleness down. (laughs) So a month or two passed, and I I kept feeling more and more dis-ease about this. So I said, okay, Father. Because my relationship with him was so sweet, I didn't want anything between me and him. So I knew all these wonderful single young ladies, and I called one of them up on the phone and said, would you like to go to the picture show? She said, oh, Rick, I'd love to go to the picture show. She said, but I'm already engaged. And I said, oh, thank you, Father. (laughs) 
another couple months goes by, there's going to be a retreat for our singles group. And so I, again, Father's pushing on me. I said, okay, Father. So I called another one, and I said, you heard of that retreat? Yes, Rick. I said, would you like to go on that retreat? She said, I would love to, but my parents are coming in town. I can't go. Oh, thank you, Father. So again, I was free. Okay, a couple more months go by. And uh, well, let me stop and tell you. Two years prior to this, I had been on a retreat, a church retreat. And I sat next to my wife, who is my wife now, Kathy. And we just, just had small talk. But the next night, I had a dream. And in this dream, we were one. But it wasn't physical, it was spiritual. It was the most fantastic feeling I had ever had. And I remember I woke up at 2 in the morning and went in and drank a Dr. Pepper or a Coke. And the feeling didn't go away. It was an unbelievable feeling. But my theology didn't let me put any stock in dreams. So I never acted on it. But she was always very special to me because of that dream. Okay, now all of a sudden, now you see Father's already had me ask Lady 1 out and Lady 2 out. Okay, so he's pushing on me again. It's about the 50th anniversary of our church, and Billy Graham was going to come and speak to the banquet because his brother-in-law was our pastor. So I was at a singles group. Kathy was sitting on a bar stool, and it was like the Holy Spirit said, go ask her, go ask her to that banquet. So I went up, and I said, have you heard about that banquet? She said, yes. I said, would you like to go? And she said, yes. And I was just waiting for the but. <laughs> but the but didn't. She said, I actually already have a ticket. Oh, okay. So that night, three people came up to me and, and asked me, Rick, can we be praying about anything for you? And usually when people would ask that, I'd say, oh, yeah, pray that I keep my eyes on Jesus. That sounds real spiritual, you know. It's good. <laughs> three people came up to me and said, can we pray about anything for you? And I said, yes. I said, number one, you can pray that I have a broken and contrite heart. Number two, you can pray that I have wisdom. That's God's perspective. And then number three, I said, pray that I have faith to act upon the wisdom that he gives me. Because oftentimes I would get the, I would have the broken, contrite heart. Often I would have the wisdom. But often I did not have the faith to act upon the wisdom that he gave me. The faith to abide. They said, can you tell us anything else? I said, no, but this could be a life changer. <laughs> that was a Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. I pick her up. We go to the... To the banquet, we actually sit at this table with this girl who had said that she thought I was afraid, and her mother. That, again, didn't bother me. And uh, we went to the banquet, and then after the banquet, of course, I was now 27 years old. I had not been out with a woman since I was 22. I said, would you like to go to my apartment and talk? And she said, sure. So we're driving to my apartment, and uh, on the way... Uh, I was just making a little small talk, and I said, you know, that's a pretty dress you have on. And she says, thank you. She said, I bought this dress to get married in. I said, said, married in? It doesn't look like a wedding dress. It was white. And she said, well, I was going to get married in Austin, Texas, which is kind of a weird city, and I was going to have flowers in my hair. It's kind of a hippie wedding. Uh, So, you know, so we get to our apartment. And as a bachelor, I never cooked a meal. I would go through the drive-thru, and by the time I got home, I had, had dinner. So I had, I had some instant tea, some milk, and some ice water, and a package of cinnamon rolls. That was it. So I said, would you like some water, milk, or tea? Of course, not hot tea, because I didn't have anything to heat anything with. It's just, I'd like some iced tea. I said, great. 
So I go into the kitchen to make this tea, and there's a, a guitar sitting in my living room. And she said, would you mind if I played your guitar? And I said, no, not at all. So I'm in the kitchen stirring up this tea, and she starts playing this very popular folk song at that time, and it was called The Wedding Song. (laughs) Oh, it was like father. So I came in, sat down. Uh, I, I had a chair here. There was a table here, and she was on the sofa. And I looked at her and I said, you know my friend Mark Cosgrove? And she said, yeah, because I knew she'd been out with him. And I said, well, you know, he started to date Joanne. And, you know, I talked to him about, uh, you know, married men care after things of the world, how to please their wife, da-da-da-da-da-da, and Paul's exhortation to remain single. She's just listening. And then I said, you know, I read everything I could find on Scripture, in Scripture about marriage and love, and I came to three conclusions. The first conclusion I came to, the kind of love that matters in marriage is the kind that you find in Corinthians 13. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit, you can have it for anybody. Because it's not about the person. It's about God loving the person through you. The second conclusion I came to is, therefore, you could be married to millions of people. And she's just listening. And I said, the third conclusion, there's one particular person God would like to love through you. She's... So then I looked at her and I said, do you think if it was the Lord's will, I could be a good husband? She said, sure, if it's the Lord's will. And then I said, well, do you think if it was the Lord's will that you could be a good wife? And she said, well, yeah, it's the Lord's will. And then I said, do you think if it's the Lord's will, I could be a good husband to you? Now, she slows down a little bit. (laughs) And she said, well, yeah, if it's the Lord's will. And then I looked at her and I said, do you think if it was the Lord's will, you could be a good wife to me? Now she really slows down and, you know, kind of shrugs her shoulders and says, well, if it's the Lord's will... And then I looked her right in the eye and said, will you marry me? Just like that. Will you marry me? She put her hands over her face and put her head down. I jumped up. I had delivered the pizza. I had done it. I had let this down. <laughs> I went in and made myself another glass of iced tea. <laughs> I came back. She's still sitting in the same position, head down, face, hands over her head, up, eyes. And I said, you don't need to tell me now. And the head comes up. I said, if I don't see you for 20 years and you walk into my office in Chicago, I will marry you that day as long as you do not do two things. As long as you never say no or you marry somebody else. So, brothers and sisters, basically what I was doing is I was giving a father a blank check. The day he wants to be married, all this woman has to do is say yes. So this issue between father and I, (laughs) this is gone. (laughs) We have laid it down. Okay, so, I, so then I said to her, well, maybe we should go out again and get to know each other a little better. And uh, <laughs> we had never been out. And uh, so this was a Friday night. Saturday night, she had a date with a friend of mine. And on Sunday, she was free. So I said, well, let's go to the singles thing together. And she said, okay. So I take her home and uh, went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning with all of these feelings for her, just like I had for Cherry McVeigh in the fourth grade. It was just unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable feelings for her. So it was very easy for me to spend time with her. Six weeks later, she says to me, she says, Rick, I really believe you're the man I'm supposed to marry. But she says, I just don't have any feelings for you. She says, I was engaged before. I just thought I would have 
you know, <laughs> feelings for the man I was supposed to marry. But she said, I don't. But she said, you know what? In faith, I'm going to say yes because I really believe you're the man I'm supposed to marry. Okay? I took her home. She went to sleep. She woke up the next morning. The Lord had downloaded all these feelings into her for me. <laughs> she wanted to get married the next day. We did not get married the next day, but it was only 12 weeks from our first date to the day we got married. And we have been married mm, 37 years and 40 weeks today. And it's an unbelievable, it's, it's, it's just been unbelievable. And it gets better. Okay. The breaking of Rick. What did I have in my gas tank? The way I secured myself in Christ. And if I had continued to hold on to that, look what I would have missed. Okay. Let's go forward up to 1992. It's October of 1992. I'm running along the Moscow River. Father's talking to me about moving to Moscow. It's six months after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We've planted a church there. This voice speaks to my mind and says, Rick, you cannot consider moving to this city because if you do, your son Mark, who at that time was eight years old, he will get sick. And there's no medical care here. He will die. And you know what? My... Reaction was, you're absolutely right. I could never move here. I went on a little further and the Spirit of God asked me a question. He said, whose son is Mark, yours or mine? Oh, he's yours. Went on a little further and the Spirit of God asked me another question. He said, well, Rick, if you were to move here and Mark were to die, and were to get sick and were to die, who would he be better off with, you or me? <laughs> you. See, it's the breaking of Rick. I had Mark's security in my gas tank. Now, no one would fault me to be concerned about being concerned about Mark's security. But as long as my security was in his security, the second his security is threatened, I become fearful. My eyes go blind, my ears go deaf, my mind goes crazy, and I can't hear from Father. Now, I didn't have to give up Mark, but I had to take his security and put it in my luggage compartment. And then if his security is threatened, I can respond out of power and a love and a sound mind. That's what happens when we abide. Okay, the next night, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm in the Belgrade Hotel, praying over the city. I love to pray over cities. And this voice is saying to my mind, uh, you can't bring Kathy and those three girls to this city where every elevator's a bathroom and where there's no food in the store and there's crime on the streets. You can never bring them here. And I was saying, I can never bring them here. I can never bring them here. I can never bring them here. And then just as clear as any audible voice I ever heard, but it was just in my mind, the Lord said, Rick, did you forget that I, my son considered a great privilege to leave a nicer place in Dallas, Texas to do my will? <laughs> oh, Father, I forgot. The breaking of Rick. No one could fault me for being concerned about Kathy and the girls' security. But as long as I had their security in my gas tank when it's threatened, I react out of fear. Eyes go blind, ears go deaf, mind goes crazy. I didn't have to give up their security, give them up, but I had to place them in the Lord's hands. Okay, 1999, I'm in Beijing, thinking Father's calling me to this city. The week before, I'd had dinner at the American Embassy with a guy who had been head of security here for a whole bunch of years, and he shared with me how he lost 20% of his lung capacity the first year he lived here. He's telling me all these devices I needed to buy to break the coal dust in the air. Anyway, I was riding this taxi, and my lungs were on fire. And this voice said to my mind, you could never move to this city and breathe this air. And I said, I could never move to this city and breathe this air. But this time, instead of 15 minutes, five, ten seconds later, the Spirit of God said, Rick, 
Did you forget that my son considered a great privilege to leave a nicer place in Moscow <laughs> to do my will? Oh, yes, Father. What did I have in my gas tank? I had my fitness in the gas tank. I loved to run marathons. I loved to be outside. And, but my fitness was in the gas tank. No one could fault me for that. But we had to take that fitness and give it to the Lord. The end of this story is in 2002, we had the SARS epidemic. Kathy goes home. Mark and I are here in the summer. I go eat some Chinese food in a little hole-in-the-wall place where there's no refrigeration, but the food was very good. And uh, we both came down with ptomaine poisoning in bed four days. But when the four days was over, I had developed this syndrome that happens in one out of 100,000 cases. And I can't even remember the name of the syndrome because the word is so long. But I got up out of bed, and my right leg didn't work. It didn't work. But here's the amazing thing. My response. When I got up and my right leg didn't work, my response was, Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for all those years I was able to run. Thank you, Father, for all that health I had. Thank you, Father. And then it was like the Spirit of God said, Rick, if we hadn't gotten your fitness out of the gas tank... Three years ago, you would have had a very different response to this circumstance. And brothers and sisters, this is, what, this is what life's about. To the extent we abide in anything other than Jesus, we do not abide in him. And if you want to know what you or I are abiding in that's not Jesus, then what are you worried about? What are you thinking about? Where does your mind go? Because Jesus says where our security is, there's where our heart, our mind attends. So in this world, brothers and sisters, everything moves. Everything breaks. But Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus, a paraphrase on Matthew 6, says, So do not secure yourself in anything in this world where everything moves and everything breaks. But place all your security in me. I will never fail you nor forsake you. For where your security is, there your heart will abide. None of us need lessons in abiding. We all know perfectly how to abide. The problem is we abide in many things other than him. And I just gave you an example of the breaking of Rick. Three, four very good things that I abided in. But the extent I abide in anything other than him, I don't abide in him. And when those things move and when those things break, I move and break with them. We're going to talk more and more and more about this. Because we, we want to send a third of this congregation away every year, complete in Christ. And what does that mean? You know, James talks about, talks about you know, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you encounter all sorts of trials. Because trials brings forth patience. And when patience has its perfect work, you will be complete, entire, lacking nothing. But well, what do the trials do? We're all like little airplanes, and we're in this wind tunnel. If the wind comes up, we're just kind of there. But when the wind really turns up, and we start shaking, and we start saying, well, this is loose, and this is, we need to change the design. What trials show us is the things that we are holding on to, when they move and they break, we're moving and breaking with them. And they show us exactly our Achilles heels. They show us our vulnerability. The Christian life can only be led by one person, that's Jesus. He said, apart from my Father, I can do nothing. 
He says to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. The only difference between Jesus and us is he never tried (laughs) to do anything apart from Father. And we've got to dumb down, dumb down, not live in our own sufficiency, but learn to live this life of dependence upon him that he might live his life through us. The scripture says, if the scriptures don't say what someone has said, I gave myself for you so I could give myself to you so I could live my life through you. And that's what Jesus wants to do, live his life through us.